No one likes to feel stuck, especially by your cloud. But the IBM cloud is the most open and secure public cloud for business. It can manage all your apps and data anywhere. Smart loves problems. IBM, let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash flexible. Welcome to The Sporting Life with Jeremy Schapp. Over the next hour, John Barr and Dan Murphy detail how Larry Nasser abused young gymnasts without detection for years. A woman named Tasha Schweikert, who was an Olympian from 2000, shortly after she uh, had competed for the Olympic team, she actually went to see Larry Nasser in his home. She thought of him as an uncle. Plus, Melissa Isaacson explains some of the difficulties that many young female athletes faced in the 1970s. In 1975, we weren't allowed in the quote-unquote boys' gym at our large suburban high school, which is not in any way unusual. You know, we couldn't practice or play. We were certainly grateful we had a team and we had uniforms, but we shared the uniforms among every other girls' team. Also, we remember Kurt Flood, who forever changed the landscape of professional baseball. After 12 years in the major leagues, I do not feel that I am a piece of property to be bought and sold irrespective of my wishes. I believe that any system which produces that result violates my basic rights as a citizen and is inconsistent with the laws of the United States. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Here's Jeremy Schapp. Welcome to another edition of The Sporting Life. Later in the show, an appreciation of Kurt Flood, who changed baseball and all of professional sports and in the process sacrificed his own career. But first, it was a monumental week in New York. There was the retirement of Eli Manning and there was the captain, Derek Jeter, gliding into the Hall of Fame with not 100, but 99.7% of the vote to consider Jeter's legacy, his achievements, his accomplishments, and a remarkable baseball career, we welcome his Boswell, Jack Curry of the Yes Network and formerly the New York Times, who co-wrote with Jeter his autobiography more than 20 years ago, The Life You Imagine. Jack, thank you for being with us this week. Jeremy, it's great to talk to you. You saw the whole thing, beginning to end, uh, 20 years. Um, when you think about this moment for Derek Jeter, which has been a foregone conclusion for a very long time, what immediately comes to mind? I think the fact, Jeremy, that he was able to survive, more than survive, thrive in New York for 20 seasons, put up the numbers and the resume that he did, sixth most hits of all time, five World Series, captain of the Yankees, and not only do it on the field, but never have a hint of controversy off the field. You and I have both covered many an athlete who were swallowed up by the distractions mm-hmm. or the temptations of New York. Jeter never let that happen to him. And in working on that book, I, I think I traced some of the solution and some of the reason why. Talking to his mother, father, grandmother, sister, high school friends, they said that Derek Jeter that got to New York as a starting shortstop in 1996 at the age of 21-22 that was the same Derek Jeter they knew as a 14- or 15-year-old, that, that he was committed, he was disciplined, he was mature, he had this goal, and he was going to chase it down. And I, I know millions of kids had that goal to play for the Yankees. Jeter actually made it happen. We're speaking to Jack Curry of the Yes Network, who's covered Derek Jeter's entire career as a player in New York, all two decades of it, the five World Series championships, the Rookie of the Year award, the 3,000 hits, 
And Jack, you got to know him, of course, on a personal basis as well. Um, I, I was around, I was one of those guys who was around occasionally and I'd see him once in a while and, and I developed honestly a, a fondness for him, but to be around him every day, that constant exposure for 20 years, how would you describe him on that personal level? Jeter, Jeter was consistent. Uh, a lot of reporters who covered him rightfully said when you would walk away after a 10 minute interview with Jeter, Man, he, he answered all the questions, but, but he didn't really say a heck of a lot. And I think, I think that was by design. One of Jeter's favorite players, in fact, his favorite player growing up was Dave Winfield. He had a poster of Dave Winfield on his wall. He talks about the reason that he started his Turn 2 Foundation was because he heard Dave Winfield started a foundation. And Winfield had some tough times with the media in New York, tough times with the owner in New York. And Jeter digested all of that. And I think when he came to New York, it was his plan that I'm going to be courteous, I'm going to be cordial, but I am never going to say something that is going to end up putting me on the back page. Now, in one-on-one settings, when you talk to Jeter, I absolutely think he was better in one-on-one settings. You could talk baseball with him. He would talk about the importance of his family and his life. And, And that's one of the things, Jeremy, that I think should be highlighted. And I'm not looking to criticize other players, but... I've had a lot of players who who will mention family and throw family out there, and then an action will occur that will make you say, wow, that didn't jive with what they just said. Jeter's relationship and the importance of it with his parents and his sister is 100% sincere. He told me that he talked to his mother or his father every day of his major league career, and I absolutely believe that is true. It's interesting, um, as someone, again, who who covered them, um, you know, once in a while when a big game rolled around or during the playoffs, but you were there all the time. You know, my sense was, you know, he was a leader, obviously, and much was made of his leadership abilities, but he was that quiet leader. He wasn't, he wasn't Paul O'Neill. He wasn't like those veterans who were on those teams that won, uh, the four out of five between 96 and 2000. When those guys left, what kind of leadership did Derek Jeter exert in that clubhouse and on the field? Well, I think Jeter had a a co-captain of sorts. One of his best friends in baseball of all time is Jorge Posada. And when you talk to players in those Yankee years, they said that Posada was the fiery sort. Posada was the guy who might get in your face in the clubhouse. As you just said, Jeter was more of a lead-by-example. And it might be a stare or a glare if you were late for a meeting, if you were late for stretching. And he did like to get on guys in the clubhouse, but I think that his method of being a leader, Jeremy, and you already hinted at it, was follow what I do. And Yankee players and executives used to say this all the time. If your best player on a tapper back to the mound is running like his pants are on fire. Well, everybody in the dugout should take notice of that. And how often do we see that nowadays? A, a player taps the ball to second base, and they're, they're, it's the slow trot, the loaf to first base. Mm. You watch every at-bat of Derek Jeter's career. That never happened. So that, that's how I think he manifested himself as a leader. What was it like for him all those years? And he's already established as a superstar. He's already you know, basically been... Um, uh, uh, turned into a marble statue in New York. He's so revered here. When Alex Rodriguez gets to New York in 2004, and then they end up sharing for a long time the left side of the infield. How did that relationship work? How did how did Derek feel about it? 
Yeah, it's interesting you bring that relationship up. In our book, which came out 20 years ago, and A-Rod was still a competitor, A-Rod did a little sidebar, a little 500-word sidebar about their friendship and their relationship. We know that subsequently A-Rod was quoted in Esquire magazine, and I'm paraphrasing here, but where he said something along the lines of, Jeter's not the guy who's going to beat you. He's not the first guy you look to take down when you're facing the Yankees. It might be O'Neill or Tino or Bernie. And those words stung Jeter, and Jeter wasn't happy. We, we all know the history there that A-Rod tried to apologize. I think Jeter said he accepted it. And, wow, suddenly now that guy is next said, to you. Said he but accepted he, it. Here's the thing about him. Jeter wanted to win, and A-Rod made them a better team. And so having A-Rod 50 feet to his right, I think Jeter and A-Rod survived together. I don't think they were the greatest of friends anymore, but I, I think they understood for the common good this is how the Yankees were going to win, and they eventually did in 2009. Jack, I, I'd, I'd be remiss if we didn't get to the one out of 397 element of the story this week. <laughs> I'll tell you, my perspective is like, big deal. Who cares? You know, one out of 397. But it is a big deal because now the Hall of Fame isn't just about getting in. It's about what percentage you got. And, of course, that wasn't the story for the vast majority of the history of enshrinement in the Hall of Fame. Uh, your thoughts on the uh, controversy? I'm going to tell you an exchange I had with Jeter. We had him on our Yes Network, Derek Jeter Hall of Fame special the other night. And I asked that question. I said, Derek... The huge, bold headline is Derek Jeter goes into the Hall of Fame. Somewhere down in the lower half or the bottom of the story, it says one person did not vote for him. How do you feel about that? And the first words out of Jeter's mouth were, I don't care. He said, listen, I'm going to focus on the men and women who did vote for me. I'm in the Hall of Fame. That's what matters. And then after a little bit of a pause, he said, Hey, Jack, were you the one guy? So he had a little bit of fun with it because I, I still have a Hall of Fame vote. And no, I, I was not the one person. I, I think oh, that was going to be social... my next question. All right. Derek <laughs> got me. to it first. All right. It was not me. Uh, and then Shaggy, the reggae, song, the reggae guy, have a song. It wasn't me. That, so it wasn't me. You but, say um, so. drop, I have to drop a little musical uh, knowledge in there. I, I think along the lines of you, you do not get a bigger plaque. You do not get better placement because you were unanimous. Would it have been really nice symmetry for he and Mariano to go in at 100% in back-to-back years? Yes, it would have. But when we start going down through history, Jeremy, and we, we recount all of the players who were not unanimous, which is everybody except Mariano Rivera, right. I, I have a hard time getting all worked up about it. Yeah, this was not, uh, I, I think I said this, the railroading of Captain Dreyfus or the Lufthansa heist, uh, although right. you would have thought so in New York. Jack Curry, uh, it's always a pleasure, and especially this week, as I said, Derek Jeter's Boswell, the co-author with Derek Jeter of The Life You Imagine, Jack tells me, is still in print and available on Amazon. Jack, uh, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. I enjoyed it. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. It was a chilling story. Generations of young girls... Athletes, many of them, abused by the osteopathic physician Larry Nasser. A story that was covered by my colleagues, John Barr and Dan Murphy, and it was remarkable reporting, and it is now the basis of a new book by Barr and Murphy, Start by Believing, Larry Nasser's Crimes, the Institutions that Enabled Him, 
and the brave women who stopped a monster. And it's a pleasure to be joined by both John Barr and Dan Murphy. Gentlemen, thanks for being with us. Jeremy, thanks for having us. So, you know, you guys were right in the middle of covering this story, which was so horrific and for so many people, so shocking. And there were so many victims for so long that in some senses, this was, this was a story. This was an abomination hiding in plain sight. Uh, John, let me start with you. Why did it take so long to bring Larry Nasser to justice? Wow. Well, there were a tremendous number of missed warning signs through the years, Jeremy. Uh, more than anything, he did it through the force of his personality. He was an incredibly uh, friendly, gregarious guy. Uh, he did a masterful job of manipulating the emotions of young girls and, and young women, their parents. Uh, he ingratiated himself with the gymnastics community. He was the guy who would go above and beyond to treat these gymnasts. Um, and when I say treat, I put those words in, that word in quotation marks. He would see them after hours. He would see them in his home. He would uh, connect with them on social media. He would like their pictures. He did everything he could do to win the trust of these young women. And within the culture of gymnastics, which Dan and I uh, you know, found to be a culture of fear and intimidation, Larry Nasser emerged as the good guy, the good cop to so many abusive coaches, bad cops. And it was in that way that he was able to essentially get away with it for decades. And, and then you just factor in that when he was reported, uh, time and again, he had this very clever medical defense that he used as a smokescreen to explain away what we now know was sexual assault. And one of the most chilling things about this story, and I keep using that word, um, we're speaking with John Barr and Dan Murphy about their new book, Start by Believing, Larry Nazar's Crimes, the Institutions that Enabled Him, and the Brave Women Who Stopped a Monster, which is just being published now. Well, one of the most chilling things is that he would commit these crimes. He would abuse these girls in the presence sometimes of their loved ones. And he would, he would, you know, say this is a medical procedure, as you suggested before, John. I mean, the, the, the depths of the depravity are, are um, it, it's frightening to people. Um, were there victims? I mean, there were, who didn't even realize they were being victimized because they believed him. Absolutely. Yeah. And there were hundreds of them. Uh, you know, one of the, examples that sticks with with me is a a woman named Tasha Schweikert, who was an Olympian from 2000, who went on to become an attorney. And she's a mom now. Um, When Tasha, shortly after she uh, had competed for the Olympic team, she actually went to see Larry Nassar in his home. Uh, She thought of him as an uncle. Mm. She flew to uh, Michigan and stayed in his home for a week. And it was there uh, in, in a spare bedroom that he massaged her. It was on a training table down in the basement where he massaged her and, and sexually assaulted her. And Jeremy, he told her that there were, she had an Achilles injury, okay? And he told her that there were muscles inside her vagina that if manipulated internally could uh, alleviate the pain in her Achilles. And she didn't even think twice about it. 
she trusted him completely. And look, he did this in front of parents. And when I say in front of, he often used his body to obscure their view. He would drape a towel or something over the midsections of the young women who he was sexually assaulting. Uh, but, but he had such an ironclad trust with these parents uh, that they, uh, they allowed it to go on. And, and then there were instances where they, you know, they thought, well, gee, something doesn't seem right here. And in the case of Rachel Ben Hollander and her mother, uh, who spoke with Dan, um, you know, at one point they noticed that Larry Nasser was sexually aroused, but they thought, well, maybe this is just an involuntary rea- reaction. Uh, and they, they just didn't allow themselves to go there and think this guy's sexually assaulting young women, not in the moment. Dan, we'd like to think that most people, the vast majority of people, confronted with evidence of this kind of wrongdoing would do the right thing and would defend children and try to prevent harm from being done to them. But the lesson here is that that's not what happens necessarily. Yeah, that's right. And I think for some of those people, it was, you know, especially for some parents, they, they were groomed and fooled uh, by Nasser and the facade that he built up and the reputation he built up over years. And for other people, it was not wanting to be a problem. And I don't think anybody, I hope that nobody clearly saw and knew the extent of what Nasser was doing and then turned a blind eye to it. But I think that there were so many warning signs that if people had communicated if people had listened to young women as they came forward and made these claims and really took them seriously, that he could have been stopped many, many years earlier. And part of the motivation there is, is honestly not wanting to believe it themselves, and part of the motivation there is probably the fact that uh, it would have destroyed the reputation of, of a lot of really powerful institutions, and it would have called into question the, the priorities of a lot of things like USA Gymnastics, like Michigan State University. Um, and no one was willing to start down that road if they didn't have a very clear picture before they started down that road. John Barr and Dan Murphy, their new book is Start by Believing Larry Nasser's Crimes, the Institutions that Enabled Him, and the Brave Women Who Stopped a Monster. John, Dan, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you. Really appreciate you having us. Glad you're able to talk about it. Thank you, Jeremy. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. For the last 30 years, Melissa Isaacson has been one of the best sports writers in America. For two decades in Chicago, covering the Chicago Bulls of Michael Jordan, covering the Chicago Bears. She's now teaching journalism at the Medill School at Northwestern University. But before she was a sports reporter and before she was a journalism teacher, Melissa Isaacson was an athlete herself. And her new book is about that time in her life. It's titled State, A Team, A Triumph, A Transformation. This book, it's not just about your athletic career uh, as a high school basketball player uh, in the Chicago suburbs. It is about the way in which um, women's sports began to transform, use the word transformation in your title, transform in the years following the implementation of Title IX in 1972. What was it like being a girl in the 1970s who loved sports but didn't have the outlets you wanted in which to compete? Yeah, it was it was painful. It was frustrating because you know you were you were labeled a tomboy, which was not necessarily complimentary as as a little girl. 
Um, it kind of meant you were an outcast. You weren't really a girl. You weren't really a boy. You were sort of somewhere in between. Mm. You know, and all that was, was fine if you could play and you'd chase along after your brothers or the boys in the neighborhood. And then they'd go off and put on their uniforms and go play in real, on real teams and in real leagues. And we were left to, you know, watch to kind of press our noses up against the fence or to go home and wait for them to come home and, and let us tag along again. So it got frustrating. And uh, for me anyway, you know, until junior high, there there just wasn't that outlet and there wasn't, you know, the opportunity to to compete and to learn all the cool things that, that boys were learning in T-ball when they were little about team play and pushing yourself and being tough and strategizing and all that cool stuff that really serves you well in life. Um, for me, all I wanted was a uniform. You know, I just wanted like a cool uniform. It was really simple. And, uh, you know, it, it took a little while. I was lucky because obviously our older sisters and cousins, uh, many generations of girls didn't have it at all. You, your book, State, your new book, it goes back to this period in your life and um, to this time in which uh, change had been mandated for girls and women in sports. Um, public funding, you know, was going to be dedicated for the first time by law to put women and girls on a par with men in terms of opportunities in sports. What was your awareness of all that going on when you were a freshman in 1975? We didn't know. I mean, you know, Title IX was kind of a vague thing that we knew that we were going to have a chance to play actually on a varsity team and then in 77 in Illinois for girls basketball to play for a state championship. But, you know, there weren't, uh, first of all, it took a couple of years for the whole rest of the country to realize that Title IX after 1972 was about sports at all. Mm. Um, I had the honor to interview Dr. Christine Grant, who is one of the pioneers and longtime advocates of Title IX and gender equality um, at the University of Iowa. And, and this weekend I talked to her, and she talked about how all hell broke loose a couple years after when even even senators didn't really fully realize that this meant sports, you know, that this meant girls were going to bump, you know, God forbid, bump boys out of the gym and, and, you know, God knows what else. And so... You know, and I, I talk about there weren't like Title IX police running around the country enforcing it. So there was still stuff. We still didn't, you know, in 1975, we weren't allowed in the quote-unquote boys' gym mm. at our large suburban high school, which is not in any way unusual. That's what it was. We, You know, we couldn't practice or play. So um, we may have been aware, and we were certainly grateful we had a team and we had uniforms, but we shared the uniforms, you know, among every other girls team. Um, and, and so, you know, it was like a, a little, it was a little bit of a tease, but um, I think more than anything, we were grateful. And uh, we watched the four year period that I document it was an incredible period of growth for, for girls in the country. And for us, we, we enter in high school in 75, not allowed in that gym. And four years later, we're, playing to standing room only crowds in that gym and beating Jackie Joyner um, and her East St. Louis team for the state championship. So for us, we thought anything was possible. Yeah, well, listen, they're, they're, you know, when you, when you set out on a project and you've written books before and you're going to spend a lot of time doing it and you've got to really be in love with the topic, there's a message right. you want to send. How long were you thinking about writing this and what finally <laughs> convinced you <laughs> to do it and to delve into autobiography, which is an entirely different genre and requires 
a different way of thinking. I mean, it certainly did not start out to be a memoir. Um, I was sort of the unofficial team documentarian, if you will, by writing little poems to our coach and silly things like that. Um, on the occasion of the 25th anniversary, and we just celebrated our 40th 15 years ago, I uh, wrote a column for the Chicago Tribune in which I talked about all the things we didn't know at the time. Our our coach was a young woman who no one else really wanted the job. She had played a little six-girl basketball but certainly didn't know how to coach it and had secretly sought the counsel of the legendary boys coach at our school at the time, and they sort of hid in the corners of the teacher's lounge, and he would scribble on napkins and literally teach her how to teach us. Um, our principal was going downstate and fighting with men that he called the crew cuts. He would come back up to school and tell his friends and colleagues, of course, we didn't know this, that um, they were afraid basketball is too dangerous for girls, that over their dead bodies would they allow girls to take the gym time that boys had. So he was strategizing, you know, trying to get certain sports that he thought were more genteel, like badminton and, uh, you know, volleyball that they might allow. Um, so, so all these cool things that, you know, as kids, you just don't know, made for a column 15 years ago, uh, that turned into what was originally going to be a young adult book and maybe a screenplay, but it never got off the ground. I became frustrated uh, I didn't know what a young adult book even was, to be honest, and I didn't know how to really write like narrative nonfiction. So it sat around. I would I would kind of play with it and you know tinker with it, and then I started. I had written a magazine story about my parents' battle with Alzheimer's, which began when I was in high school, and uh, I finally realized, with the help of Scott Price, who you know, yep. S.L. Price, one of our great writers for Sports Illustrated, he encouraged me to sort of tell my story and um and for some reason it just clicked when he said that you know it's your story just tell it and so i finally kind of rewrote the whole thing and that's why it took so long and uh but i think i think somehow the time is right you know it felt right to have it coincidentally come out on our 40th anniversary and certainly during a time right now when uh you know, women's issues are at the forefront. We're speaking with Melissa Isaacson about her new book, State, A Team, A Triumph, A Transformation. And looking back now, Melissa, 40 years later, after um, what you experienced, what that team achieved, what did it mean? <laughs> what has it meant to you all these years? How has it informed the way <laughs> you have approached life and your job and raising a family? Oh my gosh, it absolutely changed the people we were. And, and when I, I had the chance to interview Birch Bay um, a couple years ago, and I, and I sort of babbled um, and, and told him that, you know, that it changed the people that we were. It, it, it made me have the courage to, you know, become a sports writer, to walk into men's locker rooms, to, you know, raise our children the way we did, to, um, because we're in, typical of every other group in society, you know, we had women who had terrible uh, hardships happen to them along the way and, uh, and, and as adults. And they absolutely talk about uh, what they learned as athletes, giving them the courage to fight through um, their very adult issues in later years. It, you know, and, and there are women who are very successful. It's, no coincidence that when you look at the most successful women in the Fortune 500 lists and so forth, 
that um, almost 80 plus percent, I think it's 84 percent, were athletes at one time, team and team sports, most of them. Now, there's still a teeny percentage of Fortune 500 executives who are women. That's a whole other thing. Yeah. But of the women, it's no coincidence that they all played sports. So it it completely changed changed my life and changed who I was. I think yeah, I certainly like sports, and there were certain things I would like to think I would have accomplished. But but be, be, being able to play and compete and then win a state championship uh, was hugely instrumental. Melissa, it's always a pleasure. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Jeremy. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. This week, the nation honored the memory and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. 50 years ago last month, the year after King's assassination, an athlete inspired by the civil rights movement and King's efforts to create a more equal society demanded change in the realm of sport. It was an effort that many at the time considered futile, even foolish, and certainly self-destructive. But as Claire Smith reports and Kurt Flood's widow Judy and his teammate Tim McCarver recall, Kurt Flood would not relent. He would not give in. And eventually, he would prevail. After 12 years in the major leagues, I do not feel that I am a piece of property to be bought and sold irrespective of my wishes. I believe that any system which produces that result violates my basic rights as a citizen and is inconsistent with the laws of the United States. On Christmas Eve 1969, Kurt Flood's letter to baseball commissioner Bowie Kuhn started a movement that would change sports forever. Two months earlier, Flood was stunned when he was unceremoniously traded from St. Louis to Philadelphia. His letter, elegant in its defiance, served notice that baseball's reserve clause, which bound players to their current teams, was no longer acceptable. Kurt Flood refused the trade. Kurt's from Oakland, and we all know during the Civil Rights Movement what happened in that town. We had the Black Panthers. The atmosphere in Oakland was one of we're moving forward, we're moving forward. This was his Civil Rights Act. You're a man who makes $90,000 a year, which isn't exactly slave wages. What you were taught to that? Uh, a well-paid slave is nonetheless a slave. If any player was built to fight baseball, it was Flood a center fielder who had won seven consecutive gold gloves and had been a major force in the Cardinals' 1964 and 67 World Series championships. St. Louis teammate Tim McCarver, who was in the same trade as Flood and agreed to go to Philadelphia, echoed the player's feelings at the time. I had no idea that any player would ever test a reserve clause, and it would take that player sacrificing the rest of his career for it to be effective. Eleven days before Flood sent the letter, Marvin Miller, the executive director of the Players Association, had invited him to the executive board meeting in Puerto Rico to make his case to the union's player reps. He called it his freedom flight. He needed the union to support him through this process. Marvin Miller was very honest and he said, Kurt, you realize if they don't elect to be, have a free agent and change this around, you'll never have another job in baseball. 
Kerflood argued that the players only hoped to break the owner's iron fist control was unity. After hearing his impassioned plea, the player reps voted unanimously to back Flood. On January 16, 1970, Kurt Flood filed a civil lawsuit against Commissioner Kuhn, challenging baseball's reserve cause. After that unanimous vote, he felt that the players would be there with him. He realized after they were witnessing the way he was being treated and the pains that he was going through, it might not be a good idea to step out and follow him closely. Flood's case started in the spring of 1970. Former major leaguers Hank Greenberg, Jim Brosnan, and Jackie Robinson were the only three players who ever appeared in court to support him. And I'm a bit regretful of that. I think we could have done a better job at supporting Kurt. I've never said that, and I, but I do feel like that. Because in essence, he was by himself. And that's a heavy burden. After sitting out the entire 1970 season, Flood had 35 at-bats with the Washington Senators by the end of April 1971. The fans were loud and mean and vicious. Inward, you, we're going to kill you. In his locker was a funeral wreath. And he said, if they were able to get this wreath past security, then I need to leave because somebody's going to kill me. Kurt Flood, only 33 years old, left baseball. He was living in exile in Spain when his case reached the Supreme Court. In 1972, the justices voted against Flood five to three. He was devastated. He had given up his whole life. He was in a foreign country, out of fear. But Kurt Flood's courageous stand in 1969 cracked baseball's foundation. In 1975, the walls came tumbling down. Pitchers Andy Messersmith and Dave McNally won their arbitration cases, effectively giving players their freedom and a victory most never thought they would see. Kurt Flood challenging the reserve clause uh, was essential to the blossoming sport we have today. It took a stand for the players. It took a stand to make a change. That's how leaders are built. Baseball takes pride in celebrating its heroes. Kurt Flood, one of the greatest heroes of them all, should no longer be overlooked. For the same reason people were lynched when they marched, for the same reason that when ministers spoke in their churches and spoke of them getting the right to vote, their churches would be bombed. You have to go forward with what's right. So he went forward. Claire Smith reporting. In his majority opinion in Flood versus Kuhn, Supreme Court Justice Harry Blackman described baseball's antitrust exemption as an aberration and an anomaly, but declined to strike it down. In the New York Times, Red Smith, the legendary columnist, wrote of the verdict, It's a great disappointment because this court seems to set greater store in property rights than human rights. Kurt Flood died in 1997 at the age of 59. In 1969, his final season, the average Major League salary was $24,900. By 2019, 44 years after the advent of free agency, 
it had risen to 4.36 million. We close this week's show with some thoughts about a retiring legend. Call me old fashioned, but Eli Manning was my kind of star. I appreciate exuberance as much as anyone else. There are far too few Muhammad Ali's out there, but there's also something to be said for Eli Manning's quiet, subtle, inconspicuous way of doing things. For a decade and a half as the face of his franchise, in the glare of the New York media spotlight, Manning was a model of moderation, steady, a pro's pro, gifted to with an exquisite sense of timing, at his best when it mattered most. Those two epic runs to the Super Bowl, arguably as much as the ultimate victories themselves, were Eli at his best, winning at Lambeau in Ice Bowl-esque conditions. No problem, and no big deal either. And then in Phoenix, and four years later in Indianapolis, all he did was outplay Tom Brady and beat the greatest defensive coach ever. He didn't do it alone, far from it, but the point is, he did it. He rose to the occasion. It wasn't always easy, I'm sure, being compared to his brother, one of the three or four greatest football players ever. And it mustn't have been easy maintaining his composure when he was benched in 2018, ending one of the game's longest consecutive playing streaks. But Eli always had a way of making the difficult look easy, which might be why he's underappreciated. What Manning did this week, retiring, reminded me in a way of what he did in those Super Bowls. The clock was running down, and instead of making a fuss... Eli made a play and goes out a winner. Thanks for having joined us. I'm Jeremy Schapp, and this has been The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio.